0: Every Assyrian person has the right to speak on Assyrian culture, because you are Assyrian. Your presence as an Indigenous person is enough.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Sarah, and I was fortunate to speak with a lovely soul, Anukina Warda, about what it means to be a policy analyst in Sydney, Australia, and how she reclaims Assyrian narratives and mythology through her passion project, the Assyrian Priestess. In this interview, we delve into Anukina's background and discuss her goals for the Assyrian Priestess project and how we can reclaim our culture and narratives. You can find the Assyrian Priestess on Instagram at the underscore Assyrian underscore Priestess, You can also subscribe to her teachings on Patreon for just about three U.S. dollars a month, which I recommend if you enjoy listening to her as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by all of us here at the Assyrian Podcast. If you want to join us as a co-host, nominate someone to be our next guest, or find out how to sponsor one of our episodes or seasons, check us out at AssyrianPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy. welcome to the podcast anukina i'm so excited to have you here i'm very excited to get to know you a little bit more through this podcast and see what you do thank you it's great to be here so would you like to share where
0: you're from where your family's from yeah so i was born in sydney i've sort of lived here most of my life actually My parents are displaced people. So my mother was born in Basra in Iraq. And my dad um, was born in Ramadi, but he comes from the Habaniya community, which I believe was displaced people from Hakari who ended up on a British reserve. And then he grew up in Baghdad. And so my father, who, and both my parents, in fact, are Marbushnaya. So we're from a tribe in Hakadi called Marbishu. And my father left Iraq in the late 60s and immigrated to Sydney. And then my mother followed him a few years later. Um, And we've been here ever since. Was there
1: a reason, Sydney, and not let's say, any of the other diaspora communities that Assyrians are a part of today?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my father had two brothers that were living in the U.S. for many years. And so I have some family in Chicago from those marriages that I've never met. There was also a cohort that went to Belgium for a while Um, I don't know, that is a good question, I'll need to find out why Sydney, because we've also got a bunch of family in London as well. I think it's very unique to the Assyrian experience, isn't it, where we've got like direct family members in multiple parts of the world.
1: I am just always so curious because that was one of those things that I would ask my parents all the time, you know, growing up, why Chicago, of all places? You know, it's just phrasing here. What do you do for work in Australia?
0: So I'm currently leading a statewide policy organization. As you know, I'm a longtime policy analyst for the state government, and I was recently invited to apply to lead a statewide policy organization that has a focus on refugee and immigration policy. So, it's a bit of a learning curve for me. I don't come from refugee policy practice. And so, I'm learning a lot um, at the moment. I do come from a social policy background. More recently, I was working in countering violent extremism. And so, there are a lot of intersections into, you know, forcibly displaced um, communities. And yeah, but I think, you know, at the moment, The work that I'm doing is quite challenging, quite demanding and interestingly enough um, is so close to home because I grew up watching the refugee experience play out around me and without really knowing too much about how visa subclasses work and, you know, applications to the UNHCR, for example, Yeah, so I've been doing that, I'm pretty new to this role. One exciting thing about our organisation I would like to add is we actually work primarily with young people. And one thing that I'm learning is that young people in the resettlement context are actually play the most complex role in the family unit and so require more complex and sophisticated approaches in resettlement. And I don't think that, you know, I don't think we're quite making the mark. So a lot of the work we do is collaborating with young people to get the right advice to both the Australian and the state governments here. Um, and then sometimes we actually support young people to get to Geneva, to get to New York, because as you can imagine, a lot of them really want to have a say in places like um, the UN. So yeah, that's what I do during the day. That's really cool. Do you encounter Assyrians at all in in your work? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I meet Assyrians from the entire spectrum, actually. Assyrians, as you know, identify in such, you know, heterogeneous ways. And one thing I noticed that not all Assyrians even identify as Assyrian. And I wonder if this is actually a policy dilemma that we need to grapple with. Often, that's not people's fault. Um, You know, when you arrive into a program, whether it's an English language program or whatever it is on offer, there are very few boxes you can tick and sometimes it's about, you know, place of birth. And so we have a multitude of people ticking places of birth, which of course are not, you know, um, traditionally Assyrian, for example, because we are sort of displaced over generations. And so part of my work and part of that little extra that I bring is encouraging policy to shift that and ask people what their cultural identity is as well as their place of birth, for example, because I think then we can get a better grip on the data of how many Assyrians have been forcibly displaced and they're not just counted as people from Syria or people from Iraq, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do also wonder, you had mentioned that this is fairly new to you. Um, How did you come into this line of
0: work? Yeah, like all things, I feel like the road that you end up on kind of nudges you towards what you're good at. When I left high school, I ended up doing an arts degree at Sydney University and I majored in political economy and gender studies you know, at the time I didn't really know why. I just knew I liked studying those, um, you know, areas. And I was sort of reluctant to dive into a career path straight from my bachelor's degree. So I didn't want to enroll into a law degree or something that was going to lock me in. I wanted to have that flexibility, I suppose. But then of course, when I graduated um, from that degree, I didn't pursue an academic sort of future and I ended up teaching English. I ended up training to teach English to people who were refugees and were newly resettling. Um, And at the time I thought, well, if I study to teach English, you know, I can travel the world and, you know, I was a young traveler. so. I enjoyed applying for jobs internationally and I, I never really felt settled in Sydney. But of course, you know, one thing leads to another and I couldn't really, I never really enjoyed the education system. I found it way too kind of oppressive and curriculums are very, you know, impenetrable. And I like, I'm a visionary. I like creative thinking. I like pushing the envelope and you know before too long i was invited to apply for roles in government and i felt at the time when i was looking at sort of demographic data and social issues and then being in round tables with people solving those social issues i kind of felt like i had found my place in the world and i thrived so yeah that sort of led one thing led to another Um, and then in more recent years countering violent extremism has become on the agenda for the Australian government I think globally in fact and a lot of uh, social policy trained people were invited to you know to play a role in what we call CVE and I think as well we were invited to play a role a lot of the work that I had done was with young people and of course those, you know, the, the major actors in violent extremism are young men. And so they were looking for people who had worked with young people and understood sort of youth cultures and wanted to solve the dilemma of why young men sort of entering into extremist movements. So, so yeah, that's how I sort of, you know, piece the jigsaw together.
1: How does your day job tie into your project of educating people about Ishtar and and the Assyrian priestess page? How did you come to find this outlet?
0: I suppose for me, when I was working in countering violent extremism and counterterrorism policy, um, I was actually briefing parliament at the time. And what I found in the state government was that no one, including myself, really had a very cohesive narrative of who the Assyrian people were. And so there was a lot of briefing around, you know, people from Iraq and Syria. Of course, there was a big focus on ISIL inspired extremism at the time. But what I couldn't find in a lot of, you know, the file notes was anything on that effect on the Assyrian people who the Assyrian people were and why it was critically important for us to consider, you know, the violent erasure of not just everyday human beings, which, of course, is of prime importance, but of cultures who may never be able to practise their, you know, traditions again on their territories. And I think at the time, I mean, this was sort of like 2015 and 2016. And I myself didn't have the answers to that. I remember calling my father a lot and inviting him to have lunch with me and engaging in conversations around the impact and the effects because I wasn't seeing any of that story enter into the narrative that was going to the Australian government. And I thought it was important that it did And so I suppose as policy writers and policy analysts, a lot of what we do, yes, we are researchers primarily, but we are researching social issues that are happening on the ground. You can't just do a desktop search on things that never have existed before. And so the power of a good policy practitioner is someone who knows how to outreach to communities and have conversations about how things are affecting them and I think that inspired me to begin re-engaging and reconnecting with the Syrian people on the impacts of not just violent extremism but displacement more broadly and I feel like it was a turning point for me I was in my mid-30s at the time And I realised how little I knew. I realised how little I was offered about what our story and the complexity of our identity really was. So I started learning more. I started piecing, you know, I call it piecing the puzzle together because I feel like it's quite rare to get a cohesive narrative of who Assyrians are and where we are today. And I also feel like a lot of what is offered is quite a masculinist interpretation and feminist histories and sort of feminist lenses of the Assyrian experience are even more rare. And so I think that was part of the inspiration for the Assyrian Priestess Project was, is there some alternative narratives that need to be told about Assyrian queenships, Assyrian priestesses? And then so that was the inspiration for the Assyrian priestess project.
1: That's really interesting because I I didn't know anything about Ishtar. Growing up, I had heard or read some stories about Assyrian kings, Hammurabi, but I felt mostly, at least at that point, reliant on the church and religion. And I felt like it was essentially, you know, in order to push away what we were in the past rather than accepting the whole story. I don't know if that resonates with you at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that for me personally, I think um, we're actually quite a remarkable example of how Indigenous peoples will and spirit to survive works. And I am always just astounded and impressed by the role of the church um, or the churches rather and the role of all of the public institutions that the Syrian people have created um, with very little support and maintained. So I actually think that they're remarkable projects and I think it's really important that we don't blame or criticize each other because we could end for not doing enough because when we think about it our community goes above and beyond providing cultural experiences community spaces um you know all of all of all of the things that we take for granted every day as a displaced community And you use the word diaspora and, you know, I'm sort of grappling with that word at the moment, Sarah, because I'm uncertain that the Assyrian experience in diaspora actually matches the immigrant experience. I think our case is quite unique and quite different. Um, I call myself a forcibly displaced person. I don't understand um, intergenerational displacement as sort of part of that migration trope of like seeking a better life and i think multicultural policy and the immigration trope often erases the the desire for forcibly displaced people to return back home and so that's something i want to see happen a bit more is how do we return and we may not return and go back to a past You know, there's no part of what I do or what I'm interested in that is about, you know, the glory of the ancient times, you know, like I'm very much grounded in the present, in the year 2022. I suppose um, the provocations that I bring and the interjections that I bring are, number one, yeah, who was Ishtar? Was she an important goddess? Is she a sort of bigger that could help us understand ourselves better but also is Ishtar relevant to the year 2022? Do we need the goddess Ishtar? Do we need to understand any sort of ancient Assyrian narratives? And of course my answer is absolutely we do and if anything I feel like we've lost a lot of our moral grounding. You know, Indigenous cultures for thousands of years had a moral grounding and also sort of like complex cosmologies we understood how creation and the seasons and the territories worked in relation to the sky and that grounding i think gave us a sense of identity and a sense of belonging that we might be struggling with now being displaced and so for me it's absolutely helped me ground myself in a cultural identity on my own terms, as opposed to what I grew up around, which was, yep, really Christian narratives, um, which I enjoyed, and narratives around genocide and statehood which are quite complex, you know, concepts for young people to wrap our heads around, and there seem to be nothing in between. And now that I've been doing the Assyrian Priestess Project and, you know, try and speak about a broad range of Assyrian sort of histories, people are like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's nice to have a different place to ground identity in as opposed to this kind of often false binary between our faith tradition and our persecution. I would like
1: to know if anyone else taught you about Ishtar or any of the the other gods and goddesses, um, or if this was something you had to just like research completely on your own.
0: Yeah. So growing up, I was really lucky. I grew up surrounded by a lot of Assyrian culture and community. And, you know, I have vivid memories of like thousands of Assyrian people celebrating Shada and things like that in just wide open spaces. I think the binary is a trap a lot of communities find themselves in. And for me, you know, I feel like that binary is often very patriarchal in nature because even statehood and state building often doesn't allow a lot of spaces for feminist discourse. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're having this conversation now because this is playing out in the global collective right now and it will always play out. And so for me, no, I didn't know who Ishtar was. I actually found um, the narrative through a lot of women's groups in Sydney and in the Blue Mountains close by where I lived. And I met a lot of non-Assyrian women who knew way more about Assyrian sort of narratives than I did. And I suppose that piqued my interest at the time. But, of course, being a community that's often lumped with so much survival and recovery work, it's a privilege to be able to spend time, you know, learning about different stories and what they might mean and so it's sort of I don't know it's sort of one thing led to the other and I personally needed a framework of hope and a framework of liberation if that makes sense and I'm actually quite clear now not to comment on statehood and land rights and sovereignty issues because they're really complex areas and I think we need to leave that number one to people on our territories to lead, but also on sort of land rights and sovereignty experts to lead. I think a lot of us, you know, have some kind of, I don't know, ideals or fantasies that are not grounded in reality. And so, yeah, I I needed to find a place that I could contribute to, if that makes sense. And so this kind of was one. And so for me, the Assyrian Priestess Project is absolutely just a passion piece. It's very personal. It's, it's all about what I found interesting. And I thought, well, if other people are interested, they're absolutely welcome to, you know, grab a seat and join the conversation. What is the legacy we're trying to leave
1: behind with the Assyrian Priestess Project? are we trying to revive an ancient religion bring people back into like essentially a cult of ishtar
0: so to speak but there's no sort of agenda that i have um i'm not planning any any grand schemes um i'm just sort of wondering if people are interested to learn more about how assyrian people traditionally understood the cycle of life and death and rebirth through the goddess tradition, and then through that process, trying to relate it to our everyday ethical dilemmas. So a lot of people are kind of like enjoying that process and finding meaning in that process. And yeah, so that's kind of the reward for me, I suppose.
1: Is there a practice or ritual process that Assyrians need to bring back for this? Um, This doesn't sound like a revivalist movement in any sense.
0: I mean, there are pagan revivalist movements around the world. It's happening. People are remembering their ancestors in very real ways and rejecting narratives that are coming from the dominant faith groups and they're rejecting narratives coming out of the nationalist project. And so you'll see this around the world, right? Like you'll see, you know, um, Nordic cosmologies and traditions making a resurgence, for example, um, people around the world, um, you know, holding wedding ceremonies and rites of passages for their children. Um, in ways where they've sort of reconstructed the past. So another term might be reconstructional, reconstructionism, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's something that we need. And for me, you know, I feel like the story itself is the medicine. The story itself is what we're looking for. And it's interesting to me, Sarah, because I wasn't surprised when I started researching not only in Hadduwana but multiple different priestesses from Assyria who wrote in um you know the Akkadian language most of them were played really big roles in policy making what i would call policy making because reciting traditional stories at different times of the year in the temples number one, gave legitimacy to the king, gave legitimacy to the um, to the royal house. And often the priestesses were from the aristocracy. They were literate, they were trained, um, they were quite highly skilled actually. And sometimes the public rituals and ceremonies were reenactments of the stories themselves. And so that you know blessings would come to the to the land and to the people. And that's how sort of everyday Assyrians learnt these stories was through priestesses reciting them at particular points of the year. That was kind of interesting to me actually, is can we sort of create new identities through really old stories without this sort of drive or sort of urgency to bring back you know a ten thousand year old practice necessarily? If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I honestly love hearing about um the history of our our people really. Um and I just I never know where to find like these kinds of stories, you know. I don't I don't know anything about um ancient priestesses, but it sounds like it sounds to me like women had a significant role. Assyrian women had a significant role. In our history that we don't really hear about so much and it kind of resonates with me at least as to what Assyrian women go through now if that makes sense it kind of still rings true.
0: Yeah I mean I I think I, I feel like what you're saying is when we take a closer look at the sophistication and the complexity of Assyrian storytelling and Assyrian public life, uh, we understand that actually it w- wasn't only women. Assyrian culture traditionally had multiple genders. And the current the current sort of fixed roles that we have in modern times is not only, you know, this is an oppressive system that is global. It's not just specific to the Assyrian community. And it's kind of, it hurts me a little bit when I hear, you know, people say, you know, the Assyrian community is so conservative and the Assyrian community has such limited gender roles. It's not just the Assyrian community. This phenomena is global and it's attributed to a global system of institutionalized male power. When we go back and look at the time of um, the kings and queens of Assyria and the goddess traditions, we didn't only have institutions that were dominated by men. We had institutions that were led by women. And I think that's what's interesting potentially to modern-day people to see that actually, you know, emperors and great kings put their firstborn daughters into different temples um, to lead the people. They were authors, they were in charge of leading public rituals and ceremonies. They were in charge of advising the Royal House, for example, on projects like building. We have multiple sources of Assyrian rulership asking for astrologers and advice from priestesses Uh, before building, you know, major construction. And so I think what's compelling about that is there is a a resurgence of scholarship that is looking at a more diverse view of gender roles in antiquity. And then I think, you know, people feel a sense of relief, you know, that there are alternative ways of public life functioning that aren't so rigid, perhaps. Wasn't Ishtar herself the goddess of
1: gender? And if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm misremembering, but I think there, there was something that I had read before about Ishtar being able to change the gender um, of people. Is that something that that's true in our, in at least Ishtar's mythology or her stories?
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing we do know about Ishtar is that multiple gender identities played roles in her temples. One source for that, of course, are the hymns of Enheduanna. Now, Enheduanna was the daughter of Sargon of Akkad. Sargon of Akkad was an Akkadian from the north and who married a Sumerian wife. And so, Enheduanna had a Sumerian mother and an Akkadian father and, of course, was bilingual and um, biliterate. Now, Enheduanna was very strategically put in the South um, and tasked with writing Akkadian stories and mythologies in the language of the Sumerians. And, you know, my personal theory for this is for influence, right? I mean... Sargon of Akkad was um, quite a strategic thinker who, you know, many, many credit with, quote unquote, uniting very disparate communities. And one way that rulership unites disparate communities, and I see this today in my, in my policy work, is we unite people through a cohesive narrative. Now, in and story, hymns to Inanna, which is the Sumerian name for the goddess Ishtar, she hails five different genders that we know of. So you are actually right. What's awkward for me in this whole process, Sarah, is I'm not an expert and I'm not a specialist. And I'm kind of, I'm honest about that and I'm transparent about that and i think the beauty of that is i think one trap that we fall into as a syrian people and indigenous people around the world is because we are so we have had our culture violently removed from us we have had our narratives violently stolen from us and then translated and rewritten by scholars in very prestigious western institutions that then reframed ourselves back to us. And so we are now, you know, we find ourselves in this dilemma of having to read Western scholarships interpretation of who we are and what we were about. And I think a lot has become lost in that translation. And I think the other kind of internalized thought that comes through, it's sort of like an unwritten rule is, well, who am I to speak? Who am I to speak on culture when I'm not an expert, when I'm not a scholar? And one thing I'm noticing is that there's this huge movement now of, you know, Assyrian young people who are displaced, you know, applying to, you know, for their masters and PhDs um, in order for the legitimacy to speak. But I want to bring back that power from, you know, institutional discourse power and say every Assyrian person has the right to speak on Assyrian culture because you are Assyrian. Your presence as an Indigenous person is enough. And so I'm still learning about Ishtar. I am not a scholar. I do read a lot of academic references and sources to learn more about her. But I also have a lot of conversations with different Assyrian people and different gender diverse Assyrian people. And I think one of the things that I would love to see is more research on gender diversity. One thing we're learning in the gender field is in multiple Indigenous communities around the world, gender diversity was absolutely the norm and was absolutely the tradition. But we're told today that it's a new phenomena, that non-binary status or gender fluidity or transness is a new phenomena it's uh, it's a it's a western kind of symptom of consumer capitalism which a lot of scholars are actually rejecting with evidence and saying in fact many cultures around the world traditionally honored respected and had place for made place for gender diversity and i think the goddess ishtar as the goddess of love, fertility, sexuality, she, in her temples, we see a lot of gender diversity. And I believe that gender diverse people were very beloved to the goddess. And so maybe that's the link that you've made um, of Ishtar being, you know, the queen of gender diverse people. I think, you know, I think you're onto something there. I'm curious
1: as to how you came to call yourself the Assyrian priestess on Instagram. Um, is that like a title that you just uh, <laughs> <Enjoy>. <laughs> you felt close to? You, like, is it is it something that you know called to you? You're like, yes, I I need to to call myself a priestess in order to teach people about Ishtar and like kind of um, spread this uh, just just spread the love in terms of Ishtar and telling her story in 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 your lens, essentially.
0: Yeah. um no, that was never my intention. So I'm not really a social media person. and so the Instagram project for me was definitely very much a curated kind of artwork, I suppose. The Assyrian priestess was an avatar that I made that was not a personal title that I gave myself but was part of people, you know, pricking up their ears and saying, oh, what's this about a priestess? And I think one of the original intentions of that space was to quote a lot of the Assyrian priestesses because most people can only really name one or two. And I think it's important that we start to name who um, Assyrian priestesses were. I mean, these were one of the earliest authors of written history. So yeah, I wanted people to engage and relate with the archetype of the Assyrian priestess. Yeah. And so for those who follow the space, I think that's really clear that a lot of what I do there is not actually, you know, I don't priestess to the community, but I share stories about Assyrian priestesses and Assyrian sort of narratives. Yeah. But it is kind of funny that people think that I am an Assyrian priestess (laughs) because I am not. I wonder
1: what that would look like today though. Like who, who can we consider an Assyrian priestess today? Because I mean, I feel like I'll do certain things that make me feel close to the earth and close, closer to feeling spiritual. Like I, I still like, you know i'll I'll, I'll clean i'll do like the usual stuff and then i'll like do bisma and like uh (laughs) like light incense and just like go through the home and like try to get any like bad energy out and i don't i don't think that necessarily makes me a priestess in any sense but i just wonder like what does an assyrian priestess look like today in
0: 2022 yeah i'm I like that you used the example of burning bismar. I grew up when where my mother would burn bismar every Friday evening, preparing us for Saturday. And I think that's absolutely an act of a priestess. Burning bismar doesn't just clear energy from the home, but it actually it helps us reframe our mental state into a state of holiness, right? And that's a role of a priestess. I see the priestess archetype in modern day times as Assyrian women who sing in the church choir, actually. Assyrian priestesses were singers, they were drummers, and their role was to put the community into a state of reverence for the divine. And they did this through studying texts priestesses study scriptural knowledges and i think that's been one of the biggest shifts that we've seen in the last few thousands of years is knowledge of sacred text is now only in the hands of particular institutions run by particular gendered classes and that's where we saw the priestess class lose power And a lot of modern scholars actually pinpoint that in Assyria, that the shift actually happened in Assyria where we saw the shift between a lot of the reverence for the goddess being the centre of everything into a more sort of, you know, male reflection of divinity and deity and only that, if that makes sense, so priestesses know the texts, they know how to read them, they know how to recite them, they know them off by heart. And so for me, I love seeing Assyri- the Assyrian women who veil themselves and read from texts. Of course, we don't use the term priestess anymore, but just like a priest, it's someone who, who knows the sort of sacred mystery and is tasked with sharing it to the community, so that the community feels a sense of belonging, identity, and also connection to divinity. That actually makes
1: perfect sense because I it just clicked to me that we call our choir members, at least the the women choir members, shemashiate. So instead of like a shem shemasha or a deacon, essentially, you're like a deaconess. So not necessarily a priestess, but a deaconess in a sense.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I actually did not know that. Shamashyate. See, that's perfect. It's funny how, you know, I think a lot of us, we spend so much time bemoaning how much we've lost. But I think when you you know, dig a little deeper, we you realize how much we've actually retained under such extraordinary circumstances. And I think there's certainly um, some magic in that.
1: I mean, even if you just look at all of our organizations, um, and the churches and stuff, women have such a large supporting role, and we may not necessarily be, you know, the ones that are the priests and the ones that are the heads of the organizations, but we do a lot for our communities. Um, and so, I, I mean, when you were telling me about these priestesses in the past, I, I don't know. I wonder, like, were we more feminist as Assyrians in the past, or were, was our history more feminist versus, you know, what we've become? Um, Yeah, I'm not not certain
0: about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not certain and I'm uncertain that feminist is even the right term. I think there was an understanding by our people that everyone had a role to play. And, you know, in antiquity, society seemed pretty rigid and pretty structured and, you know, I certainly, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, but I don't know if I would ever sort of want to comfortably ease back into a time where things seemed pretty dicey actually. And I think the role of priestesses in the past, just like any role that we play in institutions is very much linked to power and who's in control. And we see this in the example of Enheduanna who actually becomes exiled. And some of her greatest poetry is written in exile where she writes Ishtar as the goddess of war and the goddess of rage. Now Ishtar is linked to rage and outrage and there's some fantastic stories about her seeking vengeance and seeking justice for women um, against those who would assault or abuse women but you know, the priestess's role was also kind of dicey at the time because she was at the behest of the royal house. And so if she lost favor, then you know, she was out, whether she's daughter of the king or not. So yeah, I don't know. It's all very kind of interesting, isn't it? I need um I need a
1: movie made about ancient Assyria.
0: Everyone says that. I I would love to see a film too, but the right the right script writer would need to be leading that project, you know, like if sexist Hollywood wrote it, no, thank oh, you. <laughs> no, thanks. Do you, do you experience
1: any misogyny on your page? Just cause I'm, I'm curious as to what kind of responses you get from people, because you'll see on any kind of social media, there's always someone hating, there's always someone that wants to lecture from what I've seen. And I'm just curious if you experienced that.
0: Yeah. um, Look, I did in the early days and I was navigating Instagram for the first time as a user myself. And I wasn't really sure of the etiquette and the process. So when I launched the project, I was 40 and was sort of a little out of tune with modern day online cultures. So in a way, I'm glad I had the experience that I had because I can relate more now to the experience that young people are having online. At the time, the page was a mix of personal stories, personal photographs and Assyrian cultural snippets. And that model was the model that attracted a lot of unwanted attention in between, you know, men who wanted to violently harass me to men that were known to me, who wanted to mansplain what, you know, they thought was the right version. Yeah. So I did experience some of that. The moment I removed all of my personal photographs, it all stopped. And so I think I have now found the perfect recipe for being online is when a space is kept to a subject matter and a content and is very carefully curated, then it also minimises the risk for members of the community. Now, I'm not saying that if you do post your photo that anyone has the right to harass, intimidate you or otherwise Um, but I found that that was my barrier to be honest because you know that's not something that made me feel very safe and made me feel very good at all and I thought about closing the project a few times actually but I've met so many young women and just amazing humans from around the world through the project that I just wouldn't close it. You know, I think it makes more meaning than it takes from people. So, yeah, I absolutely did experience that, unfortunately. And I think that those sorts of experiences, we need to call out more. So my one of my responses at the time was to out the perpetrator. So I would screenshot everything and then make it a post and then invite my audience to report that page, to reach out to that person if they knew them, to directly confront it. Because I think what happens to a lot of victims and a lot of girls and women is we hide violences that we experience, gender-based violences that we experience because of fear, because of uncertainty, because of just the energy it takes And I think being older and more resilient helped me just out people. And so as as those people started to realize that they were not going to get away with that behavior, like, I honestly haven't seen anything, you know, for the last year. And the project's about three years old now. That's interesting that you would call people out because it does
1: take a lot of energy. Like, you, you feel like you have to go after it once someone has sucked you in. And then you, you don't even realize how much energy it takes from you just going about the day. Like, instead of just going about your day, like, focusing on trolls, essentially, um, that might come online just to harass.
0: Look, yes, but I think, you know, as women under patriarchy, Sarah, we're constantly under assault. Like, in our daily life, walking True. the street, catching public transport, like, women are always and, you know, have that extra burden of the emotional labour it takes to protect ourselves from gender-based violence, right? And I feel like we're carrying that emotional labour even when we don't call out people. Because, you know, if you've experienced an assault or harassment, that is something that could deeply traumatise and affect a woman for the rest of her life. So women are still carrying the heaviness and the weight of constantly being hailed as an object to be um, abused publicly or privately. And so for me, at this point of my existence, I kind of feel like, well, I'm going to use the energy anyway. I may as well use the energy to call out that perpetrator and call them to account, you know?
1: Yeah, good on you. To wrap up our podcast, I did want to ask, is there something um, maybe like one important thing that you you might think Assyrians should keep with them that Ishtar has taught you or the stories of Ishtar has, have taught you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not here to tell people what they should and shouldn't do. <laughs> I think Assyrians are sophisticated enough to choose wisely for themselves. You know, the, the myth of Ishtar's descent to the underworld and her subsequent ascension is one of the narratives that's the most compelling to me and I think it's compelling on so many levels. Firstly, it's helped me make sense of my own personal trials and tribulations to hear the great goddess goes through the seven gates of the underworld and then, you know, makes it out alive has been a story that I've really anchored my personal framework in. And so I credit my ancestors for that. I also understand the myth of the descent as one that really reflects the collective, you know, so many many speakers are speaking about this sort of collective dark night of the soul where, You know, never before have we been so urgently asked to respond from an ethical place globally. And, you know, this is not just about, you know, the peace movement and the women's movement. It's about climate justice. It's about land rights for Indigenous people. You know, globally we are being asked to respond more urgently than ever and the descent myth for me helps me understand that there is a way out of the depths if we choose to reclaim our sovereignty wisely so that's that that myth you know this myth was written some say 10,000 years ago is the oldest clay tablet we have and you know, it's remarkable that it still, for me, plays a role in, you know, making sense of this magnificent tragedy called life. I love that. <laughs> you like uh, that? <laughs> I, re- I really <laughs> that do. <would> work. <laughs> because
1: life is hard. Life is just oh. always hard. And yet somehow Ishtar made her way out of hell. With the help, Next her way. yeah, with with
0: with a little bit of help, allyship is critical to ascending. You, it's not an individual project, not even for the goddess, you know. I and do. it's a time of reckoning. You know, the underworld is a place of reckoning, man. It's not just a romantic trip down memory lane. I realize that some of our
1: listeners haven't heard the descent myth before. Can you tell us about it and your
0: interpretation? The descent myth begins with Ishtar being invited to the underworld by her sister, the queen of the underworld, Ereshkigal. Now, Ereshkigal is a very interesting Assyrian deity. Her role is to rule the dead. Now, Ereshkigal's husband, the bull of heaven, which many have linked to the astrological celestial sign of Taurus, he's murdered. And so there's a funeral and all of the above world gods and goddesses are invited. So Ishtar hears the call and she arrives at the first gate and she's told by the gatekeeper that the only way that she can enter is by removing one of the garments of her sovereignty. Now Ishtar is no fool before she answers the invitation to attend the underworld she informs her priestess her chief of staff i call her ninshabur and says if i don't return in three days i want you to do this this and this to help me because that means i'm in trouble and before she descends to the underworld Ishtar dresses in her full royal regalia now, at each gate, she is then subject to at each gate of which there are seven to removing a garment of her sovereignty until she is in the depths and in the pit of the underworld and she is reduced to nothing but her flesh, which is hung up on a hook. So she's completely, you know, she's she's reduced to smithereens, as they say. now, her priestess in the above world goes and knocks on the doors of the gods until she comes to Ea and Ea who is a grandfather figure has a lot of compassion and mercy and says yes and so between them they come up with this fantastic scheme and plot to to save the goddess. Now when the goddess is rescued she has to come up the seven gates. And at each gate, Ishtar reclaims the garment back. And I feel like the modern interpretation of reclaiming your garment of sovereignty really links itself to the underworld being a place of reckoning, the underworld being a place of truth. And it's interesting that even in modern times, when you go to an Assyrian burial, The priest in his prayers will refer to the grave as the place of truth. And so the Assyrian people then and now, we understand death to be a place of judgment. And Ishtar herself goes through judgment and the gods of the underworld are invited to um, make their decree upon her. But she escapes and when she escapes, she reclaims her garments Now, the significance of that for me and for the people that I collaborate with on, you know, reflecting upon this myth is that everyone will go through trials and tribulations in life. The difference is what can you actually reclaim back on your terms? A lot of what we find that we lose, we didn't really need in the first place. And so the underworld being a place of truth and a place of reckoning encourages us and invites us to reframe our understanding of what it is we really actually need to reign as sovereigns and to serve the community well. And I think that's the gift of this myth. It's about losing all the decoration and losing all the, you know, the pomp and rising up with what you really need to do what what does Ishtar ascend to do well she ascends to be the queen of her people and the role of the queen is to do one thing and that is to serve right and so that for me is a beautiful kind of way of understanding our individual development and processes in our psyche but also collectively And, you know, what are the things that we don't need anymore that no longer actually aid us um, and only harm us, you know? And what is it we actually do need to live a very healthy, harmonious, peaceful existence with the earth and the sky? Yeah, so that's sort of the descent myth in a nutshell, but it's a little bit more complicated than that.
1: I love that interpretation, honestly. And I would like to, you know, end this off with how can we continue to follow your journey in ancestral remembrance and, you know, learn a little bit about and the other stories that we have.
0: Yeah, I love plugging the project. So the Instagram project is growing and it's grown to – Those who want to dive deeper, get notes, have access to articles, can join a private paid space called Patreon. Patreon membership costs three US dollars a month. Um, I try to make it as accessible as possible. And you can cancel any time so you don't sort of sign up for anything more than one month. You know, one thing I've been hearing, Sarah, is from so many people, Around the world, it's remarkable actually. And what I'm hearing is them saying, finally, someone is speaking about the goddess Ishtar. And you know, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Assyrian people, we find ourselves in a really remarkable time. Being displaced all over the world is something that is you know, was possibly completely imperceptible to our ancestors and our people. And despite this, we continue to create community, we continue to create culture, we continue to identify uh, and locate ourselves through geography and through kinship systems. And, you know, I encourage all Assyrian people to, create music and create art and create poetry and write write yourself back into being against the forces that, you know, want to erase us. I think that for me is the most exciting part of this project is my Indigenous presence is an act of defiance against so many forces that have only tried to erase myself and you know my ancestors for multiple generations and that's my pep talk
1: that was really beautiful thank you for once again listening to assyrian voices we at the assyrian podcast so appreciate the ability to connect assyrians and share our stories from across the globe be sure to subscribe and feel free to reach out to us to tell us how we're doing Till next week.